Welcome to the Keto for Endurance Athletes podcast, where we show you how to push through the nutrition and training barriers that are holding you back in order to finally get the healthy body and race results you've always wanted. Take the guesswork out of your training and gain the fitness and confidence you need to succeed. Give one of our free training plans a try at www.ketoendurance.co. Peak on race day. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to the Keto for Endurance Athletes podcast. I have a very special guest, Jonathan Edwards. He's a doctor, but amazing doctor who has written, just finished a book on running, which is pretty, if you're a runner, this book will basically change your life for the better. And two, yeah, it'll make you a faster runner. I'm looking at Jonathan, his eyes are like, what? I'm like, yeah, I thought it was amazing. I was like, told my friend, Matt, first thing I messaged him, Matt, I'm reading this book. And he worked really hard and did qualify for Boston. But I'm like, I think, I can make you faster. So it's a great book. So welcome, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. This is awesome to be here again. Yeah. I have to tell folks, before I met Jonathan, I've been friends with Peter Defty. A lot of people who listen to this podcast or any keto-adapted, fat-adapted, Peter doesn't like the word keto-adapted, so fat-adapted people probably know Peter. And Peter used to talk all the time about Jonathan, Jonathan, this, Jonathan, that I'm like, my goodness, I think Peter has a man crush on this guy, Jonathan. And then I met, I met Jonathan. I'm like, all right, he is pretty darn cool. Yeah. So tell us about the book, how it came about the history of it, because for people who know you from the past or the past interviews, you worked with Roman Bardet. You're a cyclist, worked with a lot of cyclists, was the team doctor for AG2R for a little while. Yeah. Yes. Where did you make the jump from cycling to running? This also, I feel like if you read the book, it applies to cyclists as well, like road racing and, and stuff like that variable, not so much with drafting, but just a plan or time trials, especially. But go on. Absolutely. So, all right. So the, the name of the book, first of all, is The Science of the Marathon and the Art of Variable Pace Running. So that's the title of the book. And I, I didn't write it all myself. So I wrote it with a, a very well-known sports physiologist from France named Veronique Bilat, or Bilat, I suppose, in English. She's based in Paris. She's published dozens of books, over 150 publications, and and we'll get into a little more of her history. My history in running, actually, I started as a runner. During my motocross days, My, I found out I was pretty good at running. And although I was never in high school running, and when I was in college, I actually was discovered as a good runner. And immediately, I was put on the, the varsity college team where I was regularly running two, like 230 marathons. Um, wow. And then I, uh, yeah, and I, I was, I also finished seventh in the state of California at, at the Mount Sac state championships. And, and yeah, I was a pretty regular runner in, 
I mean, I, this was without altitude training, iron optimization, nothing. This was just a 17-year-old kid who could... Oh, I think you, know, you I have could, some nice set of genes. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, they say that. So anyway, and then I got injured racing motocross some some years later, and that kind of ended my running aspirations. Although I've gotten back into it, and yeah, I'm, I'm running like, you know, I'm running like six-minute miles again, and pretty, pretty comfortably. Um, I'm still cycling though. So, but my plan is to train for, you know, use the training knowledge I have, you know, through writing the science of the marathon with uh, Dr. Balat and work my way up to a marathon again, you know, and it's kind of the backstory. So my original, I came from running, then went to cycling. And now you could say I'm kind of doing both. Very cool. Very cool. How did you meet Dr. Balot? Like, uh, what's the backstory? Because this is like when you sent me the said, "Hey, can you review this?" I was like, "Well, this was not what I was expecting." Yes, so I met Dr. Balot through an email exchange. I was very interested in one of her physiology subjects named uh, Robert Marchand. He's a 105-year-old cyclist who had the uh, hour record. And I was interested in his training and how he, in his diet and, you know, and then his history of um, what they call sarcopenia. He decreased his protein intake for only one month at 105 years old, and he lost a significant amount of muscle. So anyway, the story fascinated me, and I wanted to know what the truth was, because you'd read about it, and you know, on the web and as you, on the internet blogs, and you never get the straight story. So I emailed right. her directly, and I emailed her in French. Oh. And she emailed me back, says, I've never been emailed in French by an American in my life. And she wanted to know more. And then, of course, she told me all about, you know, Mr. Marchand's real story and you know what all the backstory there which i write about right it's in the book yeah it's in the book right but so we started our relationship that way then we got to talking about training and nutrition and and cycling and i told her about my running career as a young and she said why don't you come check out what i do and she's a phd physiologist in in Paris. And I told her I was interested in doing my PhD. So we kind of connected that way. And then I agreed to do my thesis under her. And I mean, it's kind of a dream for me, you know, go back to France, get back into school and, you know, and do a PhD. Because that was kind of my original plan before medical school was to do a PhD. I'm, I'm more of a science geek that way. And I was like, man, I'll, I'll never get another chance in my life to actually do this so and then she goes by the way once we got all the phd stuff out of the way i've got a book on marathon running that i would really like you know either a new book or something like that and uh, but i needed in english so i looked at everything she did in french and i mean it was basically a master's graduate book you know that nothing you could just translate straight into english It, it just didn't work and so she tasked me with writing a book using her methodologies into English. So that's what I work, I've been working on for over one year now. And that's how we came up with the science of the marathon. Oh, it's really good. It is, 
even after you've translated it, it's still a little technical. So folks, whenever, if you get the book and you read it, just skim over that stuff. Because that's what you can still get the gist of what to do without reading the technical stuff. Because that's what I did. I took chapter at a time and I was like, I don't have a background in physiology aside from coaching and my certifications and stuff. But when you get all into the real, the weeds, I was like, I don't care about that. And then that's that's fine. I was like, so if someone's reading the book, don't, don't beat yourself up. If you're like, I don't understand what they're talking about. Just skip that part and go to the next chapter. Yes. And I mean, all the scientific technical stuff. I mean, I toned it down the best I could. And I mean, that was even a leap. I mean, when you get into the real studies and her books, I mean, you know, Dr. Balat's accomplished has been a game changer. And, and I got to know this because I started asking several people to review the book, like Matt Fitzgerald, Mark Kukazella, some Olympic athletes like Brenda Martinez, and they all knew her work. I mean, straight away. So the second I asked people, Hey, would you review this book with that Dr. Balat and I wrote? I mean, yeah, it was kind of like, oh, it'd be an honor to do that. She's a big deal. Yeah, I felt very honored that you asked me to review it. <laughs> so I, I can understand that. I had never heard of her, but I thought I'm a low man on the totem pole of sports science, anybody. But it was super cool. And I, what it made me think of, so we'll go into variable. I'll let you describe a little bit about it. But I read a long time ago a study or something about how kids run and kids don't run at a steady pace little kids who haven't been taught anything they run at a variable speed so they had the kids run across the football field and they would speed up and slow down speed up and slow down and the kids who did that actually did better than the kids who you know tried to sprint across and then they fizzled out my son was in cross country for a little while and I just remember those kids, they all ran like that little, I think they were sixth graders would run at a variable speed. But can you talk a little bit about sort of the background, how she figured it out and just talk a little bit about the background. Sure. She certainly was a aspiring runner and she just was sick of doing the, um, you know, the typical training that is done, you know, by college athletes, you know, the 200 meter sprints, the, you know, 1000 times three, you know, the 200 by eights, all this kind of thing. And these, in addition to the long distance running, the LSD running, and she studied enough comparative physiology, as you alluded to, children and animals run naturally at a certain frequency or a certain variable pace rhythm. That was one thing she did. She took her training to the hills and and she ran a PR of a 118 um, half marathon. So she was up there, you know? And, and then the second thing she did was to focus on, you know, women in running. And then the third thing she did, she focused her research on doing VO2 max testing on the field away from the treadmills. So a lot of the understanding of lactate metabolism and VO2 
maps and mechanics and these kind of things come from treadmill studies. And she spends a lot of time in the book explaining why these studies don't give the real picture and why variable pace running is is really a thing and why it can lead to better results. And she even proves it. She's written about it in a study and in the book about how the two-hour marathon can logically be done using a variable pace running methods. And then she goes into why running a strict pace doesn't lend well for energy use, usage, say, you know, lactate metabolisms, you know, even glycogen and, you know, and so on. So that's kind of the, sh- the short story. And I imagine that. knowing like that after reading the book and thinking about my own running experience, it feels better to run at a variable pace than it does just to try to run a steady pace. Like for. Yes. Yes. And a lot of variable pace running is practice, just like anything else. You have to practice feeling your sensation and you will spend a lot of time. She, she basically wants you to get adapted to be able to run what you feel is an easy pace, what you feel is a medium pace and what you feel as a hard pace naturally with no watch or anything. And these take time to master. And she put out a big study showing that how many minutes if you start at an easy pace and how long you could run it and to the time you will reach your upper VO2 max and then what that time is at a medium pace and what that time is at a hard pace. And she found in kids and adults alike that the the easy pace is usually around 11 minutes or so. Medium pace is usually around six to seven minutes and the hard pace Usually you can spend about three minutes there, you know, and then she went further and she tested the lactate levels in each of these circumstances. And she did all of this, not on treadmills, but, you know, on the track, you know, that's the start of it anyway. Very cool. So let's talk a little bit about what I think about, because a lot of times studies like these are done on elite athletes or very fast runners. And in the book, you have a lot of examples of fast runners. And I thought about, I work with typically slower, (laughs) much slower runners and people who are, who are trying to feel good and run faster or run for their health. And I think that a lot of times the athletes I work with beat themselves up because they start running and then they have to slow down because they just don't have the metabolic base or, or, you know, the speed or even the run form for that, but to not beat yourself up and realize that normally the running at the different paces is really naturally what your body probably wants to do. So there's a couple of things here. First, yeah, she did a lot of studies showing how this prevents, this type of training can help you prevent injuries. She quotes the book that Variable pace running is exactly the opposite of constant pace running. And by learning to run at a variable pace, you prevent injuries, you spend less time running, and you more efficiently build the metabolic machinery to use different energy systems. And there's a big difference between the how the elite 
athletes use this and how, say, an amateur athlete or, you know, someone new to marathon running would use this. And chapter two is all about elite athletes and how their pace varies within, you know, their metabolic capabilities or their, their aerobic capabilities. You know, these people with huge engines, you know, like Kipchoge or, you know, or some of the Ethiopians. And they're very precise at how they increase their pace, slow it down, increase their pace and slow it down. Then she jumps over to the non-elites and shows that if you can do the same things, you'll be able to complete a marathon without killing yourself. Like the 23rd mile won't be, you know, the mythical the wall, wall yeah. that everybody talks about suffering so much through those last three miles. She, she says that's done and over with using variable pace running. And, and she has videos about this and, you know, it, it's very well done. And I think for the master's athlete, I think this is a great way to go, you know, uh, from an injury uh, prevention Prevent. perspective. Well, I think it would be great for people just to think about that when they're starting running, they wouldn't beat themselves up so much because they can't maintain a steady pace. So that's what the new athletes. And I remember when I was first started running, I was like, I can't maintain this pace, but I could maintain a variable pace and feel better. But I had it in my head that I needed to maintain a certain pace. And I know people I work with think that, and I'm like, no, that's, but that's sort of like all the little apps. You can put alerts on your Garmin or, or whatever to maintain a certain pace. It beeps at you when you get below something or above something. Yeah. So I feel like we probably had that natural sense and then we unlearned it. We learned something else to replace it that wasn't natural. And then basically learning variable running is to train yourself to forget how you learn to run. Yes. I'll tell you, it's not a straightforward thing. People think they're, oh, I'm just going to go run. You know, I'm going to go try some of these uh, workouts that she has, you know, and then all of a sudden you're going to, you know, be a good variable pace runner. And, and even Matt Fitzgerald, you know, the author of 80-20 running, he even says it in his blog post, you know, he, he gave it a, he gave one of the exercises a, a try and, you know, he tried. But he admits it takes practice. It does not happen. And everybody who's ingrained into running a constant pace, they go with that because that's all they know that works. Yeah. Do you think muscle memory and just the nervous system memory is part of the reason why we get stuck in the that pattern? That you have to retrain everything. You have to retrain your ideas about how you run, your muscle memory, your energy system so absolutely i mean you know and it goes back to tim noakes model of the central governor system right uh, there's so much that depends on how your brain perceives you know the fatigue it's basically the brain not letting you go to the point where you're going to destroy and tear your 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 muscles you know and that's when you see people you know quit the marathon 
you know, sometimes that's the point they've reached. They, you know, they've reached and variable pace running helps you attain that intuition that your brain already has. One thing that really caught my uh, eye was a study she did with what are called, anyway, grid cells or accelerations. And she points out a human can never tell you how fast they're running ever. We can't tell how fast we're going in a car. We can't tell how fast we're riding a bicycle. We cannot tell how fast we are moving our legs and running. But we intuitively know what an acceleration feels like, what our easy acceleration is, what our moderate acceleration is, and what our hard accelerations are. Every human at every age who's capable of knowing you know, these kinds of feelings can tell you that. For me, that was an epiphany going, wow, this is why this makes sense. Yeah. Not so much in running, but in a time trial, I think about how hard I'm trying to push and then I back off and then I think, oh, I've just backed off and then I push harder again. Mm -hmm. The person's reading the book that those ideas about your own, you know, experiences will come back to you. I think a lot of us who've been doing endurance sports, we get attracted to all the gadgets, you know, your heart rate, you're looking at your power, you're looking at the speed, and you're trying to regulate yourself according to all of that instead of regulating to to how you feel or, or thinking about how your body feels in that moment. Yes. You know, and that and that's what this is all about. It's not it's not so much to get away from those things. But it, it, it's about to add the layer of where your body knows where it's at and then let the times prove it. You know, she she uses Garmin GPS, in fact, to do one of the tests. You know, there, there's several tests you can do to know your VO2 max without running on a treadmill and without doing what we call, she calls VO2 max tests, uh, tests the little corridor of death. <laughs> so anyway, that's the, the French is, yeah, they, um, that's what they call it in French anyway. So, and she, she says it's, it's nonsense for you to push yourself so far that one, you can't recover from it, but two, it's an unrealistic VO2 to reach. So throughout the years, physiologists like her and others, one example is the University of Montreal track test or the Cooper test or the mini Cooper test. And these kind of talked about in the books, but they're, they're, they're kind of academic exercises. But the point is, is you can do these. And what's important is it, it can track your speed and your distance and your heart rate and give you your VO2 max within two to four and a half percent, I believe, or two to 5% of what a legitimate CO2 oxygen test would ever tell you. So anyway, the point is, is it it, it can almost be a pleasure, almost like an everyday run where you can um, test your VO2 max. And she, she developed a test called the rabbit test, the rabbit tests. It's called the uh, running advisor bill of training test. That's the acronym. And her her whole website is called billatraining.com and we'll get into that. But anyway, the rabbit test is very important. Basically, you go out for easy 10 minutes 
what you perceive as easy for 10 minutes, then you walk for one minute. Then you sprint for six seconds, walk for one minute. Then you move on. The next part of it is you run at a medium pace for five minutes. You walk for one minute. And then you run at what's called what you would think is a hard pace for three minutes, walk one minute, then you sprint for 30 30 seconds, walk one minute, and then run easy for the next 10 minutes. The whole thing takes like 30 minutes, but the only hard parts of it is those eight minutes, the medium and hard paces. That's it. From that, we can calculate your VO2 max and your improvement on it. And that's it. You know, there, there's other people who do this too, but you can go right to our website, plug that, G, uh, that TCX file, or I think there's another it's file. TPXT. Yeah. You can download the file and upload right. it into our program. And that gives you your VO2 max. And you can check this every two weeks if you want. And it's not like you're dreading the test. That's a big deal. I don't know if you ever. I have done a VO2 max test on my bike but not on a treadmill but it was not pleasant yeah so my my first vo2 max test when i was you know training in college i actually passed out and they i hit my head oh that's not good no it wasn't good (laughs) the vo2 max almost killed me (laughs) no no, yeah nice i mean i did i passed out it was crazy i mean it was uh it was nuts but anyway that's it shouldn't be that way. And you don't want it to be that way because, you know, those are the things that, you know, the anticipation of what you're going to about to go through is not constructive. And, and she makes the point. It's not, it's, it's really not reality either. And it's on a treadmill. Like, uh, I mean, I did mine yeah. on my bike and on a trainer and I had the, yeah. the VO2 max with the backpack. Yeah. And that's her point. This is all done on a track or some consistent path that you know to run or road, you know, it's done outside and, and uh, off of the treadmill. And she's, that's what she's all about. Yeah. When I read the book, I was like, this sounds more natural, like yeah. learning to work with the body instead of making the body do something else that it's not supposed to. You're supposed training the body to do, to do something. I mean, basically this is, I guess, you know, reverting back to how, your body's supposed to move. Right. And then then traditional marathon programs, you know, takes you whatever, 16, 20 weeks from the couch to the marathon. And they do it by just gradually increasing your mileage. Right. You know, where, you know, there's some debate whether you need high mileage or not. You know, many, some, most of the studies show that once you pass 70 miles in a week, you know, your risk of injury goes way up. And, Success in running is all about your mitigation of risk of how many miles you put in to achieve a certain fitness. Now, granted, you know, with, with the very, you know, high elite runners, they're always going to need to put a lot of miles in. But, you know, with, with the person who just wants to finish the marathon, it's clear you don't have to put in 70 to 100 miles a week. Ever. Yeah, that's a you know? something that I, I get a little irritated with. And just the perception is that more is always better. I posted your article about the ketones and the, the cyclist and wow. my cycling group online. And somebody's response was, 
you don't need that. You just need to ride more. And I'm like, well, first of all, there are Tour de France cyclists. They're riding plenty. So I thought that's a little bit of a ridiculous comment. And two, a lot of times the people I work with, and granted, I'm using, I mean, to training stress score and goals and, and that sort of thing. I'm telling a lot of people to do less. I'm like, you need more recovery. And they got faster because they added more recovery instead of more mileage. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that's something that frustrates me that I feel like there's this mindset that the only reason why people aren't faster is because they haven't put in enough time and enough miles. Right. You know, that comes from the LSD method, you know, like, because it works. That's one of the main reasons. We, we know that works, but at what cost? You know, and the cost is injuries. You know, the cost is, you know, a decrease to your health also. But it, it, And time. It, like, people don't have the time to put in all that. Well, and then the joy of running is taken yeah. away. I mean, the whole joy of why you're doing this is gone. You know, and, and that's the other point that's made here is, you know, we're, we're talking about finding the joy of running again, where so many people have lost it. And I start off with the story in the first chapter. There's a, a this person named Joe, you know, he's a, some a, a CEO exec or whatever, wants to do a marathon. He's never run one before. He's not a runner. He signs up for a 20-week marathon program, takes him you know, from the couch and then uh, gradually increases his mileage. And then he ends up with a knee pain. The coach has him do say the 10, 10 or 12 mile run anyway. And then uh, he gets through that. And then the next week he runs a 5k or 10k still with the knee pain. And then that, that 10k is what puts his knee over the edge. And now he goes to the orthopedic surgeon. Now he needs a, a knee arthroscopy and his marathon plans are done. Yeah. Where it's you, mean. You to, and what I hate is the coach blames the person like, well, you know, they didn't have enough time in as a runner. Or, like or they don't technique. take responsibility. Right. They don't take responsibility. The coach doesn't take the responsibility for maybe I told them to do something incorrectly. That's what yep. gets me is that there are these coaches out there who are fast or, you know, whatever, who can put in a lot of miles, but then their clients can't do that and then they're like well you know they're blame the client for they didn't follow the program right or all kinds of reasons they need to do more yoga or or something but sorry go right. on jonathan but it's a pet peeve of mine <laughs> yeah and then then we go into another example of a person named cindy in the same position exact never ran a marathon and you know she does the you know the bill of training techniques where she's learning to pace yourself, doing variable pacing, running, uh, taking no more than 30 to 60 minutes, two to three times a week, plus maybe a long run on the weekends. And she's learning to zone in her body. And because she's spending less time running, she's decreasing her risk at ever injuring herself. And she's learning a, you know, a healthy, natural way from the get-go. And she can go on to running a marathon, make it an enjoyable experience, never hitting that wall because she's trained her energy systems to never have to to face that wall. 
And then that's where we go into a lot into the book. And, you know, that's where you get into the weeds, but you don't have to worry about those weeds. weeds. You don't worry about the weeds. Just know when you're reading the book, you don't need to worry about the weeds. Just think about Cindy. Yeah. I have another question about run form. So I'm a pose method coach and they're like their ideas like you know if you just have you know the you want to have minimalist shoes or try to work towards minimalist shoes and then if you can feel your feet running and do the drills if you have muscle imbalances or muscle memory imbalances the the drills will help retrain your body to run correctly and i have noticed i do run better but i was thinking when i read this uh the book that this running technique of variable running would also help your body naturally sense how to run or contribute to it. So can you talk a little bit about that? And I don't remember because it was a while ago I read the book that did you talk about shoes or if you need certain type of shoes or? Uh, no, we, you know, that's something that we didn't, we don't get into sh- types of shoes or, you know, I, I go into a little bit about the carbon plated shoes, you know, and how I contributed to the two hour marathon. But besides that, it's more about cadence. We get into cadence and then Dr. Jack Daniels wrote a lot about that. And, you know, he, he pointed out that many elites have a cadence of 160 or better, you know. Right. um, If you know about the pose method, he, Dr. Romanoff talks a lot about cadence as well. Right. And anybody who you see runs a long time has an extremely efficient cadence. You know, they've got a nice, fast, smooth cadence. And that's what uh, takes, you know, most of the stress off and, you know, allows you to keep running into your later years. And again, yeah, the the chi running, the pose method, all that kind of techniques are definitely worth to look into and combine you know, with this type of training, but I would say that they're, they're, they're separate concepts in a way that you need to combine, but, you know, however you run, those are combinable things. Yeah. I think some of it, I mean, from the book and, and reading with Dr. Romanoff, a lot of it is on cadence. Like if you naturally have a high enough cadence, your run form starts to correct itself. There are still some things, but Chi running is a little different. They talked about the difference between in the course. Yeah. But honestly, we don't get a lot into that in the book. I think that's a, you know, that's definitely another discussion. And she, she's written on the whole mechanical efficiency of elite runners versus beginners, actually. She published a paper in 2004, I believe, on this very subject, you know, so, yeah. so it's there. We just didn't get into it in the book. You know, I think is um, interesting just from my own personal experience. I started running with team and I mean, I did a marathon a long time ago in the military, but I didn't start running until I joined team and training with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And they trained a lot of, of people and they get a lot of people started in running. And a lot of the things I learned about running, because I didn't naturally have, some people naturally have good form. They don't need to be taught it. They're just, that's the way their bodies move. And I think some of it is just how much you ran as a child and it just Mm -hmm. stayed with you. It's just that this idea of you're, if you start running and you're not running fast or the marathon, 
and the half marathon experience is just fun. It's like a big, I mean, I'm sure maybe you have a different experience, but you know, you meet with your friends and there's all this, you know, music and well, not every marathon. I've done some marathons that are real tiny and that don't have any of this, but it's quite the production. And I think that's yeah. why a lot of people like, especially, um, more and more women have started running because it's this great experience that you have with your friends. And then if you join a running group or a charity group that doesn't really teach you, they just teach you, Oh, you get this training schedule that needs like you need first, the typical 16 to 20 week schedule do this. There's no talk of form. There's no talk of cadence. There's just talk about putting in your miles and then you, you meet with your friends. And so let's, let's say there's two girls. One of them is naturally a better runner and the other girl's not. And I've seen this many times, especially when I worked for team and training that the girl who's a little slower wants to stay up with her friend, run a little faster. And the friend ends up doing fine. The other girl ends up with a stress fracture or I mean, worse plantar fasciitis, like you name it, there's so many things that can go wrong if you're pushing yourself too hard. I mean, they have just amateur coaches who have gone through the program, even though team and training does, or at the time that I worked there, try to use experts to help you, to help advise the coaches. But it's still the same generic plain old plan that ends up leaving so many people broken. And then for you know, on another point, a lot of women who the stress of running, they're running too fast for their what their pace should be, end up with too much cortisol and end up fatter at the end of their marathon training than they started, which that happened a lot. Oh. <laughs> and that's the worst. Yeah. And then these people would ask me, like, why am I, I'm gaining weight with the marathon training. And it's because there's so much stress. I wrote an article on my blog about it, but about how, especially for women, if you put too much stress on your body, the cortisol is going to put pounds on you and you're going to yeah. be, yeah. it's, it's this horrible, horrible circle of bad stuff just because you want to do something that you feel like that's going to make you healthy and have fun with your friends. Long story short, I think this style of running would be much more enjoyable and keep your body healthier than that other style. Yes. And we, you know, and I also get into the book and that's where I actually, I put in a lot of my experience. Um, you know, as you said, I mean, it, it, it is crazy that, you know, a person can go into a marathon, complete a marathon and not lose weight or be heavier than when they started. I mean, yeah, that is a mind boggling phenomena that, you know, it, like you said, cortisol adds into it. But one thing I mentioned in the book, I go, you don't need the calories. Like everybody's into drinking these, you know, Gatorade Um, every time. I mean, like they think they need a protein shake after every run. Um, Well, that's brainwashing too. I mean, if you listen to my podcast or, you know, you're, you know, that I'm not all about all of that. But yeah, no, I have listened to what you said and, and that and actually I, I've learned from it, you know, especially in the sense of how women experience training for a marathon or some athletic event. It's uh, it, 
yeah, there's a very unique perspective that has to be taken into an account. And I have a lot more respect, especially after listening to what you've gone through. Um, so thanks. Yeah, I'm still going through. Actually, I wanted to talk to you about, so what time do we have? I would like, to, oh, Jonathan, we've been talking for almost an hour. So we'll, I was <laughs> like, I have 10 million questions yet. But uh, so for everybody who's listening to this, just get the book because it's a really great book. And if you're a runner and you want to be kind to your body and run faster, it's a game changer. So that's one. Okay. Talk a little bit about your article about the ketone esters and how they can improve your performance. Like the Tour de France, that's the big buzz is the ketone yes. esters now. Ah, so, all right. On the subject of ketones. So the whole, you know, keto movement or use of ketone esters in cycling anyway, you know, it's gone uh, through a genesis. You know, before it was all, you know, nothing but carbs. And now it's come to where you need periods of lower carbs, especially in the off season to, you know, train your body to use the fat better. You know, let, let's realize really quickly, though, that every Tour de France athlete is fat adapted no matter what diet they eat period. Right. It's so it's hard period. for people to wrap their head around because I have a group keto for endurance athletes and some people use strategic carbs and then other people bash them. I'm like, no, not in this group. You do not do that. I said, because yeah, right. there is no pro athlete who's, who is fat adapted or keto, well, most pro athletes just by default, they're fat adapted because their body's good at burning fat. And I mean, you're, you're riding three to six hours a day. I mean, yeah. just, it, it happens. And that's, you know, but what, but whether you're healthy about it and whether you have an optimal insulin sensitivity is another question. And so there's different things about that. So where the ketones come in, specifically the ketone esters, you know, you have the salts and the esters and the esters do a way better job at boosting you know, your beta hydroxybutyrate or ketones in your body, you know, for the amount taken anyway. Basically, what the studies are showing is that these ketone esters can increase your training volume. You know, and the latest one was done, done by the quick step quick doctor step. named Dr. Hess. Yep, quick step named Dr. Hespel. And basically what he showed was there's nearly a 15% increase in training volume when you have a Tour de France style training program. So he took elite cyclists and just showed that they could take on a bigger training volume through the various measurements. 15% is a big number. I'm not sure if it's that high personally, because, you know, I've done, you know, I've published original research myself. And anytime I see 15%, I always question it. But what I don't question is that when you train that much at that level, using a product like ketone esters do increase the ability for the body to train more. And I've spoken to many pro tour athletes who are racing the Tour de France for right now, and that's what they all say. Some say it helps them on the bike. Others say they don't recognize any help while they're on the bike, but they all recognize that it helps them for the recovery. And I think that's why it's becoming, you know, the fourth fuel. And, you know, it was pretty cool. I just uh, spoke with, I was able to speak with Tra uh, 
author named Travis Christofferson, who's pretty well known. And he just wrote a book on this called, you know, ketones, the fourth fuel. So I, that's where I got that quote from the article that he put in there. And anyway, I, I think that's how we should think about it. You know, it's just another, it's a fourth fuel, you know, versus carbohydrates, proteins, and fats. Yeah, cool. So that's a good summary. I'll keep you for just one, two more minutes. <laughs> the, okay. So that, <laughs> how, what about uh, hormones? So women and hormones... I know there's a lot of women I work with and me included have had problems with hormones. I don't know if you still do. Do you do lab testing still? Do I test the laboratory? You used to be able to do lab tests where you could analyze people's lab tests. Oh, I not- still. Oh, yeah. No, I do hundreds of tests. Uh, sometimes, you know, yeah, I do hundreds of tests sometimes per month. Do you have it where you can order from your website? I used to. I don't. I got away from that. I I work with a company called Own Your Labs uh, with Dave Feldman. Oh, I know Dave Feldman. He's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. We we kind of developed. Uh, it's called OwnYourLabs.com, and you can go there and order your own labs. And it's all done online. It's streamlined, and I mean, there it's a really easy thing. And then uh, you also help his Citizen Science Project, you know, where he's doing his uh, research. So it's for a pretty good cause, you know, so I, I kind of like to work with that platform, but certainly I all order people's labs or go, go through own your labs or, you know, or, or, or whatever, you know. Okay. So here's my question, Jonathan, when I switched from high carb to low carb, I was able to get off all of my, and I still use strategic carbs, but and then I went to carnivore, but get off all of my hormones and all of my asthma and allergy medication. So I was perfectly healthy. And then I got older. I'm 51 now. And I wasn't feeling great. So I saw Dr. Nally, which I don't know if you know him. He's another like low carb doctor. And he's like, oh, well, and I was gaining weight and I couldn't lose it. And which was frustrating because it's not like I'm super skinny anyway. And uh, he put me on hormone replacement. He said, that's the reason why you can't lose weight. So I'm on estrogen, progesterone, or estradiol, progesterone, and pregnenolone. And I haven't lost any weight even being on these hormones, which he says that might be, it takes tinkering. But I'm wondering if it's just the way I'm training and eating that's affecting my hormones that I really could correct the problem without hormone replacement. And the second question is like, is taking any of those hormones causing me any damage? Cause that is sort of terrifying to me too, that like, is this going to mess up my, my own hormone production or even cause like lead to something <laughs> like cancer or heart disease or something like that? So uh, I'll go with the second question first, you know, are the, hormones harmful and uh, you know it's certainly individual you know if you've had cancer before or you know just everybody's your own person right right I, and i mean it, and it's a whole nother topic of discussion podcast you know that's done to kind of understand that so where i point people the short answer is most of the time it's not harmful especially you know when you're working with a physician or somebody very experienced, you know, working with hormones. And for example, estrogen, estradiol is 
so important in bone strength and knowing what the research really says about giving hormones, especially to women and also men, really mean. And I, I point everybody to a certain book. And the, the book is called Estrogen Matters. And it's by uh, Drs. Blumming and Dr. Tavris. And they do an incredible job. I mean, they've been on uh, Peter Atia's podcast and many others, but no other book has, has made more clear the effects and the importance of an individual decision to use hormones in older age than this book. Certainly there's research studies, but I've really enjoyed the way they presented it. So anyway, short answer, I think there is a role. I don't believe it's harmful, but it does need to be individualized and you need to do it right by working with a medical doctor or somebody who really knows what they are doing in the administration and treatment and prescription of these hormones. Cool. And then the second answer, is there a way, and maybe you don't have the answer to this question, that I could change my diet in some way to actually have the the same benefit of like I was taking hormones then instead of. Uh, Yeah, I think, you know, what you're doing with the carnivore and diet, you know, eating more nose to tail. Uh, yeah. I, is my answer there. I mean, I, and I, I already do that. So, and you do that, you, you yeah. really do do that, you know? And then after that, I don't know if it's a set point or, or whatever, but I mean, to get to another level of weight loss or whatever, uh, sometimes I, I, I think it takes like, you got to be training like a tour de France athlete, you know, yeah. I, I don't know. Nobody has the good answer and I don't care how good you are. You know, I don't care, you know, if you're whatever Peter Atia versus, you know, me lower on the totem pole or Peter Defty. I mean, the answer is individual. And one person's going to have to do one thing and another person's going to have to do another to achieve the same result. And they could be completely different paths. Yeah, it's very frustrating. You know? I thought I had it all figured out and then I gained a couple years and then everything went. Err. So yeah, I, I was I, like, I oh, I'm on the right path. Everything's working. What? And then, uh, <laughs> you know, all of a sudden it stopped working. Then I hired a coach, uh, Robert Savage, who's a very nice guy, very knowledgeable. And he's like, well, you're eating too few calories. And so he put me on a reverse diet. He goes, you probably don't have enough muscle mass. So let's try to gain some muscle and then we'll cut back. So I, I did go do the reverse diet. I did put on some muscle and then all of a sudden I just like, poof, I gained 20 pounds super fast and uh, I can't get rid of it. You know, we can always kind of like uh, do a diet, you know, deep dive into what, what you've gone through. And like I said, I can't emphasize enough. It takes treating you as an individual, right? taking a deep dive into you, the individual with many people like myself, like somebody else, and then taking all yeah. that, you know. And Dr. Nally's like, well, uh, I can see your hormones are way off. And a lot of it's my estrogen and progesterone yeah. and testosterone. Like I'm low on all my hormones. So yeah. he's, and I also have that genetic MFTR genetic defect. So that's another okay. little yeah. piece of the puzzle that, and so I do take a uh, methylfolate. I just want to figure out the combination. Because right. I ramped up my training thinking 
I'm going to like, you know, lose it. And I was like, oh, I'll just sign up for a half Ironman and ramp up my training and nothing's right, come up. Right, right. Not even a, not even a pound. So it's. Well, we'll, we'll talk about that. In the, um, you know, in all the right. Future, well, we'll talk about that some of the time. I'm like, oh, I'm going to have Jonathan uh, captivated here. So I'm going to ask him some questions, but I love the book. There's one last thing I wanted to. Okay. To, I wanted to say on the, uh, the podcast, I wanted to end with the five, uh, give everybody something from the book and it's called the five golden rules for marathon success five golden rules for marathon success and where do All they right. find that it's in uh they lead chapter five and one it's the start number one is the start don't resist the euphoria of the start everything you've worked for is to get to the start take in everything you can and go fast Every marathon starts off fast. Go with it, even if it seems too much for one or two K. You know, we talk about kilometers in this book, so maybe for half a mile. But see if you can go half fast just for that little time. It launches your aerobic engine better, and it takes advantage of your fresh legs. It lets you complete that part of the marathon with completely fresh legs at a much faster rate than you would have otherwise gone. So that's number one. Number two, get into your zone. So that means get into the mindset that you need to be to run at that zone you prescribed yourself after the start. Don't try to keep up with anybody else. Don't try to run with you know your friend or colleague. And don't go with the encouragement. Slow down to your zone. Let it go. So it's almost like you got to slow down to go faster. So anyway, that's number two. Number three, find your comfort zone and rhythm. Once you found that rhythm, this is where you're going to maintain the small oscillations using your sensations. All this practice of running to your sensations comes in here. And this is what gives you the ability to use your your premium gas like creatinine phosphate and uh, converting lactate to pyruvate and using it like glucose. At number four, always use the hydration stations. Strategically use the hydration stations as an essential part of your race. Basically, rinse your mouth. So, you know, the, the rinsing your mouth with glucose solutions, you don't have to drink it. Just rinse your mouth. Or if you have water, Make sure you pour it on your head to try to get ahead of the temperature. You know, we say if you're a two-hour, like most two-hour marathon runners don't even eat. You know, two, two-hour 30, two-hour 45, most of them don't eat a thing. They just kind of use the water on their head and take little sips. If you're, if you're running a marathon for like three hours or more, consider some real food somewhere. You know, like cheese, crackers, rice cakes. Almond pâtés if you're in France, but, you know, versus the gels and, you know, kind of things like that, you know, but you got to use whatever you, you have. But anyway, use the hydration stations. The last one is the most important. Never, ever worry about the miles or kilometers you have run. Only focus on what, what is left to do. Be in the moment. Be in the moment of that mile or that kilometer. Because 
the future of your race only exists where you're at right at the moment, never what you have run. So be in the moment. And that philosophy of running is what's going to get you to the finish and not bonk at the 23rd mile and make the marathon an enjoyable experience. Sounds super awesome. I remember reading that when I I read the book and I thought about Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now, like that's really focused, like be present. And uh, I think that's some of the things that endurance sports are great about is helping you to be present. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So exciting, Jonathan. So we'll have to have you back because there's so well, if whenever you're you have time, I know you're super busy, but it's I love talking to you. And I think that the book is a great benefit to anybody who runs. Wow. So glad we could get together again. And again, thanks for helping to review it. And uh, yeah, let's talk again in the future. Go from there. Yeah, So awesome. And if folks want, what's the website to go to, to check out? I know the book's on Amazon, but, and I'll put a link in the notes to Amazon, but the website for the, the you running. Can go to, you can go to my website, which is uh, docedwards.com. Uh, that's the easiest one. D-O-C-Edwards.com. Uh, and Dr. Balat's website is called billatraining.com. B-I-L-L-A training.com. And that gets you right to her site. And the book will be available in both places. And you can learn more about, you know, her, her methods and coaching on her website. It's really well done. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Great seeing you. Thank you. Thanks, Stephanie. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a like and subscribe to the show. If there's anyone you would like to hear from or any topics you would like to hear more about, please let us know in the comments.